Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies, I have another great independent podcast for you. It's called Highbrow Drivel and is hosted by international comedy superstar Anthony Jeannot. Anthony is an Australian comedian relocated to London. I love the premise of this show. Anthony invites one of his comedian friends and an expert in their respective field to talk about a different topic each week. I love how the subject matter is new for each episode because it gives you just enough information to develop an interest. And if you really like it, you can Google it to get deeper or you can go read a book. Here's the last three episodes. Memory Lane, How Memory Works, Why We Need to Get Rid of Billionaires, which is my personal favorite so far, and Mind the Orgasm Gap in honor of International Women's Day. Anthony does a great job of mixing lighthearted banner with serious talk. So if you want to learn and laugh about a new topic each week, Highbrow Drivel with Anthony Jeannot is a great choice. Check it out on all the podcast apps and at highbrowdrivel.com. You know what I'm going to say here? It's a good one. Hey, BTB buddies. We're sponsored by Podcorn. If you've ever listened to a big-name podcast, you know they have a lot of sponsors. The reason why brands choose to advertise on podcasts is that podcast advertising is up to three times more effective than TV, print, or radio advertising. If you're a brand and you checked out advertising on those big-name podcasts, you found out that the cost may be way outside your budget. And if you're a podcast that would like to get some of that ad revenue, you found out that unless you have at least 10,000 listens per episode, advertisers won't even talk to you. Podcorn came about as a solution for advertisers with any budget from a hundred bucks to a million bucks and podcasters with listeners in the hundreds or in the millions. Here's how it works. If you're an advertiser, go to podcorn.com and sign up as an advertiser. You enter in pertinent information about your brand and the message you want podcasts to communicate for you. You can then choose what type of advertising you'd like. You can get a host read ad, an interview, a topical discussion, or all of the above. Then you can make your sponsorship live and wait for podcasters to give you their pitch. You decide who you want to work with. If you have a podcast, go to podcorn.com and register as a podcast. You'll create a profile with info about your podcast and the people who listen. Then you can start browsing sponsorship opportunities right away. As an advertiser or podcast, you communicate directly about the ad. There is no middle person. This is so easy you wouldn't believe it until you go to Podcorn and sign up. Guess where I got this sponsorship? Podcorn. I'm being paid to read this ad right now, and I'm just a little independent podcast. Check out the show notes for a direct link to Podcorn and sign up today. I know I'm glad I did. Today I've got Aaron Simmons, and he is a former BBC New Comedy Award and Amused Moose Comedy Award finalist. He has a critically acclaimed show called Disabled Coconut, which was nominated for the Best Comedy Show in the Broadway World UK Edinburgh Fringe Awards. That's a lot of words. But yeah, I've got Aaron Simmons, and I am Stokes. Let's bring him up right now. 
Aaron, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I've had a few UK comics on, and Mm. that's uh, it's really nice to get that perspective because you guys are a little bit different in your sensibilities and the way Mm. the way you emote, the way you go through ideas and stuff like that. So I think it's really neat to see the the similarities and the differences. But let's talk about you. Who was it that you saw when you were growing up or before you started comedy that really said, hey, I'd kind of like to do that? So it's an interesting one because I always wanted to be a comic. And I remember at 14, 15, I would watch comedy in a very different way than everybody else would. Right. So like in the UK, we would get, so you got a couple of different, comedy shows that I would watch over and over again, which is uh, Live at the Apollo. I don't know if you've ever watched that, but that's quite a big one over here. And we had uh, Comedy Central at the Comedy Store and these kind of things. It's just pure stand-up. It's Mm -hmm. not anything like that. And I remember watching... I remember I had two main... I had videos of Frank Skinner live and Eddie Izzard live. Mm. And I would watch it over and over again. And my mum just couldn't work out why I was watching this show Mm. and I was finding it funny every single time. Whereas in her world, once you hear a joke, you've heard the joke, it's not funny the second time. Whereas I would watch it again and again and find it just in the same way that I would watch comedy now. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, okay, how does that bit work and all that kind of stuff? Now I'm very different to Eddie Izzard. I'm not anywhere, like, anywhere near as good, uh, but also (laughs) just a very different comic than he is. Right. But I think those were the, big sort of earliest memories I have of stand-up and yeah never thought about doing it until I was 20 when did I start 24 I started so probably thought about it as 23 22 mm-hmm. ish but yeah so I've always wanted to be a quirk and those are the sort of I uh, I absolutely love Eddie Izzard he's I, I call him the British Joan Rivers just okay. because they were they were both very similar, and it mm. was like a machine gun attack with their punchlines and stuff like that, and mm. they also didn't take any shit, and it was really cool watching them, and I'm mm. like you. I watch stuff ad nauseum just mm. so I can see, okay, how did they move their mouth when they said that, and yeah. what was where was their left foot? And it's mm. funny because when I watch specials now, I will watch them with my wife and i'll watch it just to watch it and enjoy it and i have to make sure i turn off that part of my brain that's trying to analyze it and Mm. just enjoy it and then when she's gone then i watch it again so i can (laughs) take notes (laughs) yeah i think that's i think that's important thing to do if you're only in analytical mode and you're only you're constantly on Mm -hmm. then you're going to stop enjoying comedy and therefore not going to be as good at it Mm -hmm. and like i think the reason why good comics are good comics is because they love comedy and they stick around for the whole night and they make sure they watch every single act and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And I think that makes a big difference to someone becoming good and someone becoming very good. And if you drive yourself insane with not being able to switch off, that love of it is is going to eventually burn out. And so I think that sort of sit down and enjoy it, first of all, and then you're thinking, okay, how can I learn from this secondarily? Mm. I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, one comic I interviewed was, he had a great uh, approach because he says, I don't think about comedy in the morning. 
Yeah, okay. because I don't perform it in the morning. I'm not going to think mm-hmm. about it in the morning, and I need to fill my life with other stuff. And well, there's a certain cutoff, mm-hmm. and then I'll start thinking and writing. Yeah, I, I wish I was the same, but I struggle to switch off very bad. What's the uh, the swearing slash adult content aspect of this? Are we, are I, you can I, say, you can say whatever you want. Okay, cool. I've thought of jokes during blowjobs, and like I can't, like that part of my brain, I find it really hard to switch off. Uh, and I did stop the blowjob and be like, "Hang on, I need to write this down. This is very funny." Yeah, you can carry on afterwards, but I, I just need to make a note of this. <laughs> Isn't it weird to have <laughs> notes though? You go back, and the only two words oh. on your note is blowjob, and yeah, no, my my notepad is the thing of a serial killer. If I die tragically. <laughs> And they're going to be like, what is this yeah. nonsense? No, it's not It's not something that I would be particularly proud to be public record. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I put a lot on my phone because mm. I've always got my phone with me. I always have pencil and paper. And yeah. I'll just be scrolling along. So it, along with it is my grocery list, measurements yeah. for projects I'm doing, just all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden you son of a bitch stuff like that (laughs) i'm like where did this come from yeah you don't know if broccoli is what you actually need to buy from the supermarket or you got a very wry observation about it yeah Um, (laughs) it's a difficult balance no doubt So thinking about that first time that you did stand up, obviously you've yep. been thinking about it for a while. If you want, mm. if you were thinking about it since you were 15 and it was 24 when mm. you went up, you got nine yeah. years and it's percolating in there. And yeah. think, thinking about that first time, did you go through the training at Amuse Moose first or did you just go up? No, so I didn't train with Amuse. The award was given to me because of my Edinburgh show. Okay. Um, and I've done, I've done work with Hills before. But I had... When I said I've been thinking about it, like in the same way that everyone dreams of being a professional footballer, like mm-hmm. I would dream about being a professional comic. I didn't think it was ever going to happen. So when I did my first ever gig, I remember it was, I was 24. So it was in, it was July, 2014. I, yeah, had a an idea of what I wanted to say. A friend of mine, a friend of mine's boyfriend had done stand-up and he said that I should give it a go. Mm. And yeah, it just kept saying it over and over in my head in the drive to work and then she got up and did it. And yeah, it was the best experience I've ever done. Mm. Most nerve-wracking I've ever been. I remember I bought dinner with me because I, d- I just don't skip meals. Like the people would be like, oh, I forgot lunch. I like, I genuinely yeah. don't understand how their brain works. <laughs> how can you forget lunch it's one of the highlights of the day like (laughs) but i remember this time on my first gig it was the first time i'd missed dinner in nine years because i i was just so nervous like i I genuinely couldn't eat yeah and yeah so that was the sort of first time i got on stage was that night and and yeah that sort of went surprisingly well i think so you guys probably listeners won't be able to tell, but I'm in a wheelchair most of the time. I'm not at the moment. I'm just on my couch. Uh-huh. But I think the nature of an open mic gig where you've got 20 acts on the bill, just having someone different is enough. Yeah. And the fact that I was talking about something that was slightly more interesting mm-hmm. um, than Tinder or 
whatever the hack open mic topics were at the time probably meant that I got a little bit ahead of where I would have been without that. Right. It does. It obviously just makes you notice. We've got Mm. a gentleman here that is, he's he's confined to an electric wheelchair Mm. because his legs and arms don't work very well. And he obviously commands the stage right Mm. at the beginning, but after that, you've only got a few seconds to impress people. I know when I think of myself, I'm pretty jaded. You could come up with, uh, come up with no arms, no legs, and I still expect funny. Yeah, <laughs> so. that is the tricky thing. Like I think for me, it's a difficult balance because I think a lot of comedians who have that instant likability, it's not necessarily just being in a wheelchair, but there are just some people that just have just a lovely smile or like just something about them is so warm that mm. audiences just are just absolutely on their side straight away that it can be quite a tricky thing to get that balance of, of actually making sure that your jokes are funny enough without that sort of helping hand. Right. Cause one of the things I found is about so two, I'm going to jump around a lot cause that's the way my brain works, that's cool. but I like my legs. There you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One of the fa- one of the things that I found sort of two three years into my comedy career was I got a lot better at making things funny. So I would take an average story and learn how to make it good. Mm. Whereas what I was doing before that point was because I didn't have those skills in order to make a joke funnier or a story funnier. Mm. I would have to have a really funny story to start off with. And because I got better at telling stories and, and setting it all up and all that kind of stuff, it meant that I then started telling less funny stories in a funnier way. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, oh, hang on. No, I need to go back to those funny stories is, and then make them even funnier. And that's how I'm going to grow as a comic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a similar thing is if you can say, I'm going to make these jokes as funny or I'm going to make sure that I am as likable as I would be if I wasn't in a wheelchair or if I didn't smile or I didn't oversell a bit or whatever, it then means that when you do all of those things on top of writing a good joke, it then is going to escalate it even further. Like I heard a thing that Chris Rock, when he's doing new material, he just says it, he Mm. doesn't perform it. And that, and that says a lot because he's one of the best performers that's bit that's mm-hmm. ever bit. Yeah. And if he can go on stage and just read a sentence and it gets something, he knows that he can perform it well enough in order to to make sure it's a good bit. So I think that's quite an important thing. And it's something that uh I've noticed some comedians not some comedians accept the easy laugh and the, the simple laugh. And I've I refuse to do that. Mm-hmm. And you've got a perspective to write from. A, a lot of your humor comes, at least at the beginning, comes from the how people perceive you as being yeah. confined to a wheelchair. So you've got, obviously, something original to work from, but the way you do it in the storytelling mode is... I guess it's it's something that draws you in and it has it has teeth to it. And the other thing is I watch quite a few of your clips and you seem really comfortable up there. It, you seem to have no fear at all of public speaking. Yeah, it's a very comfortable wheelchair. That's I yeah. think that's the, that's the key. 
So I do think that is a lot of it. I think just sitting there and there's a lot of authority, I think, in, in that. Just sitting there, I'm very calm. I'm just sat down having a chat with you. And yet this is funnier than anything you've ever thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is important and that does make a difference. Yes, I am comfortable on stage now. It's been six, seven years. God, I'm getting old. Seven years that I've been doing it. And I think that part of that comfort comes from the scales being in my favor. And I've always thought this about comedy, particularly. But we go on stage and we say the thing we've been working on for three months, six months, five years, depending on what the bit is. And yes, you can say things in the moment and we pride ourselves on being able to do that as well. Mm. But you've always got that advantage in the fact that the audience member has never thought about this for a second. Mm. They don't know how it's supposed to go. So when you dictate how you want it to go, you're in complete control. And the other thing to bear in mind with that, scenario is about heckles and all of this kind of things that people build up in their mind of like of you'll know this like the first thing that people ask you when they find out you're a comic is yeah but how do you deal with heckles Mm. and a they don't happen as often as you think but b that there is going there's never going to be a situation where you are less experienced in dealing with a heckle than a heckler is in giving that heckle. Right, yeah. So they see you on stage and they go, it's called stand-up comedy, mate. Stand up. Yeah. And I've heard that probably 30 times. Uh And they just thought of it and they think they're the funniest person in the world. (laughs) And then you just take all the material you have about able-bodied people and instead of calling all able-bodied people, you ask them what their name is and when they say it's Jim or Dave or whatever, you just say, yeah, so Dave has this thing about disabled people and he thinks this and this, and then people think you're a genius that you've come up with all of these observations (laughs) about this one guy off a heckle Uh you haven't about any able-bodied person. So I think that's where that confidence comes from is that I know that, A, I'm driving. I've got the microphone in my hand. I've got 100 people listening to what I have to say, and I am in complete control of where that conversation goes to. Mm. But B, even if I do let go of the control, I know where it's going. I've been in, I've driven on that road before and they haven't. Mm. I think that's why I feel so comfortable in that kind of scenario because of it's just, I, I know all the, the cards are in my favor because is the other thing about it, not only do I have all the experience of someone shouting out, oh, but for me personally, when somebody does shout out, the audience is straight on their back. Yeah. And I can say anything, as long as it's quick, they'll laugh and we can move on. Uh-huh. And I think that's a sort of a really safe place to start from. And quite often, I think it's interesting what you said about that you're still looking for people to be funny, whether they have no arms or legs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agree with that. And, and I think what's interesting though, is I do think people lower their guard for just a second. And if you can get them, in that second where they're like, oh, I'm not sure if this guy's going to be funny. And then you tell a really quick, funny joke and everyone relaxes. Then I've got them. So my first joke is often just one word and it's parkour because I make a meal out of getting on stage. (laughs) And by that point, I've got them. And so 
I know it's going to be a good set from then on. Yeah, I am pretty comfortable on stage now, and I'm guessing you've only watched the videos that are online, which are, I'm not going to lie, the good ones. Yeah, uh, yeah, no doubt. If you want me to send you one of me dying on my ass, I'm, I've got plenty of those yeah. as well. <laughs> you keep all those too, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If I get too cocky, I just bring one of them out and yeah. bring me back down to earth. Do you, I, I know that in your bio that you're a personal trainer, how do you mm-hmm. approach going on stage? Because I've got some guesses. Do you approach it in the fact that it's your job to just slay that audience? And if you do, then you, you won the game. Or do you feel like, it's a push and pull between the audience. You, you feel like you owe something to the audience and you need to earn that respect. I don't think of it as a competition. It's not okay. me versus the audience uh-huh. um, because I don't think anybody goes to a comedy night not wanting to have a good time. Right. I think that's a fundamental thing to remember is mm. these people have paid £10, £20, £30 to come and see a tour show. You, you've it is your job to make sure they have a good night. Mm. Um, there are certain times where that is against you or that's certain times where it just doesn't go your way. Mm. Eh? And that happens. But no, essentially, you, I think that it's not a confrontation. And so the if you go, look, I'm going to tell you some jokes. If you listen, I know they're funny. Mm-hmm. If you laugh, I'll keep telling funny stuff. If, and, and we'll go from there. And the 20 minutes will be a lot more fun than if you're shouting and facing the wrong way and all this kind of stuff. So I think it's more of a sort of an unwritten agreement between the audience and, and the comic to both try and make each other have as good time as possible. And I think that's been exaggerated now, the fact that we're doing so much stuff over Zoom and you look at something like sporting events where they don't have a crowd in mm. it's making a real difference and i think that's sort of highlighting how important those kind of things are to the people who are trying to do their job whether it's football whether it's comedy whatever right. um i think it does make a real difference and i think that if you have people who are again trying to be ag- antis- uh, antagonistic yeah. it, then again you can play off that but I think most of the time, if you go with the um, premise of, okay, let's tell some jokes. If they like it, they'll laugh. And you go from there. And I think that's the attitude that I have towards that. Let's talk about writing. You said mm-hmm. that you're always thinking about mm-hmm. comedy and writing stuff down. On an average week, let's talk an average week. Mm-hmm. How many jokes do you think that you churn out? Not just the ones that you're going to use, yeah. but the ones that you're going to throw away too. In the last, however long we've been in a pandemic, about six. So I very much, when lockdown, so in the UK, we're locked down at the minute, so we're not allowed out of our houses or anything like that. Mm. When that first happened, I just couldn't write anything. I was just like, no, I'm not going to be saying any of this stuff, so I'm not going to be writing any yep. of this stuff. And, but I would say it's a difficult one because I tend not to write joke jokes or like standalone jokes. I will probably be more focused on when I am writing is getting a bit that is a story or an observation or a routine. Mm. I mean, like, okay, let's see if I can 
squeeze, ring the flannel out a little bit more, get one more joke into there, one more, oh, can I add this into there? Can that Can that bit go? Can I get a callback in there? Mm. Those kind of things. Mm. I would say I try to do that sort of once every couple of days. Like I don't actively force myself to sit down and write. If Mm. I sit down and write a laptop, it's going to be dog shit. That is just not the way my brain works. But I think that I personally believe the, the best way of writing is to write, record, listen, edit, and repeat. Okay. And so you go on, you go on stage with a couple of ideas, is try them out, see how they work. Oh, there's Philippe. You hear this, I live in in the 90s. I, uh, yeah, you go on stage with an idea. Like, I try not to, like, fully write the idea down now. Like, before, when I first started, it was very much learn what you're going to say. I think that was part of I wasn't getting the amount of stage time that I would have liked. I was only able to do it sort of once, twice a week because of my job. Now that I don't have a job, you know, and I was doing it five, six, seven times a week and for much longer, I could go on a little bit more free, a little bit more trust myself in order to make those jokes and make them work. And so you you say them with a rough idea of what you want to do. I tend to have the final punchline sorted so that I know I can play around with the bit in the end and I've still got that in the back pocket. Right. And then once once you come off stage, record everything you do. Always record. Mm. There's absolutely no reason not to record a gig. Like, it doesn't have to be video. It can be audio if, if you know what your face does during a gig. Yeah. But, like, I, I know what my face does. It's been said in, in several different reviews that I've got good eyebrows. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> what that means, but I've got good eyebrows. You are welcome to watch my eyebrows. Um, but I know what my face does, so I will record it orderly and just put it in a pocket. Mm. And, like, it doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have... All, the only reason to listen to it is so that you have that objectivity when you come back to listen to it. Because you can gig and you can think you smashed it and you can get gig and you think you die on your ass and i guarantee you when you come back to listen to it later it is going to be bang in the middle but it may be instead of say smashing it as 100 and dying on your ass as zero it may not be 50 50 mm-hmm. for both of those gigs it may be 70 30 or 60 40 or whatever but it won't be as bad as you think it is or won't be as good as you think it is right. because when you're performing, you don't want to be trying to think, oh, how can I make that joke slightly better? You want to be there in the performance and make the most of it. So if you can relax and say, look, I've got that audio, no matter what I say in the moment, I'm going to remember it because it's going to be there until I listen to it next week. Then you can make the decision of what you're going to do next. Mm. And so you try stuff out, see if it works, come back, listen to it, and be ruthless. I think a lot of the time, I remember when I first started, I heard the phrase, never gets a laugh, but I like that joke. And I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. The audience is telling you it's not a good joke. Yeah. And like, maybe it's because I'm dead inside and that I just don't have people think of their joke as babies. I don't like the idea of babies. But if something doesn't, if the audience is telling you time after time after time, this isn't funny, uh-huh. change it. And, it. and it doesn't mean that you have to, get rid of it and never use it ever again because it could be one of those things that it just doesn't work in that routine or yeah. in that show or or it, at that time in the world like 
there are routines that I have that don't work during COVID. And there are times and there are stuff that's going to be COVID related that won't work in six months time, hopefully. But I think that if you can be, uh, I think if you can be a good editor, your writing will look after itself. Yeah. I, I totally agree with the recording because you are definitely not in an objective place when you're on the stage. Because I have totally misread jokes and actually my entire act and <laughs> thought either exactly what you said. I either thought I killed when I didn't or mm. I thought that I totally sucked and it turned out it wasn't that bad. But mm. it's all you're trying to be in the moment and you're trying to be as good as you can and then if you get the self-doubt and stuff like that going then it just totally messes you up and and the other thing is those jokes you talk about that people won't let go of that's a totally an ego thing and i had a couple in the beginning that i thought i'm going to keep saying these until somebody laughs and then i finally had to say okay it's time to it's time to bury you you're done What, what was the longest joke that you left in that never got a laugh um, it was a joke about my my wife and I going. Oh, it was a gr- no. That's not the one. The longest one because mm-hmm. I it was a longer story and I had tags was a grocery yeah. store joke um, okay. about how I don't like the way people just hang out at the grocery store. My job is to get in and get out as fast as I can. And I talked about cashiers and stuff like that. Now it's something that I may bring back. Because I, now that I'm a little bit more seasoned, I think I can do stuff with it. But yeah. it was it was just awful because it was too long to the punch. The tags were yeah. too far apart. It was just it wasn't good. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I've had uh, I've had plenty of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, kill your babies. Now thinking about your style of humor, there's mm-hmm. I, I really I really there's a lot of styles, but the two main ones are. I think of her storytelling along with observation and there's the rapid fire one-liners and Mm -hmm. the difficulty for somebody who does rapid fire one-liners is they got to write a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. to fill the time and the difficulty you have with storytelling is you have to have enough tags during the story that Mm -hmm. people laugh but you got to have the big one. You you got to come to a uh, 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 head at the joke that yeah. it really pays off, and that's that's really difficult because I do a similar style as you in yeah. that, and it's really difficult to make sure you're keeping the attention and also getting the big payoff at the end. Yeah, I I know what you mean. I think I I always found that was how I was funniest naturally in real life before I did stand up mm. is telling a story. And I, I always had a sense of where that big laugh goes at the end. My big thing about being a storyteller is you're right. There is a lot of pressure in order to get that big laugh and to almost justify why you've talked about a subject for five minutes mm. to have this big payoff. But that's the reason why I want to be a storyteller. Like you can just get a bigger laugh than you could by just doing one one joke after another, you can build to this big conclusion. Mm. And that is how I've always found it easier to write. What I found about being a storyteller is that when I was doing five-minute spots, 
around with other people who were doing five minute spots, I was a, a very similar level mm. to them. And then the longer that the sets became, the more I stood out because I could tell more stories, but also it didn't feel like it was a massive jump for me to go from five minutes to 10 minutes because I was like, oh, I'll tell another story. Whereas if you're doing five minutes of one-liners, that's twice as much work in order to be able to fill that time. And then more so to make sure that those one-liners are a different kind of one-liner to the one before. Whereas with stories, I didn't find like it was that tricky because there's always something else to talk about. Mm. And I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, which <laughs> makes it very easy to talk about. Yeah, no, I always liked the fact that it was, it meant that you could, it is tricky, like you say, of keeping their attention and like on a Friday and Saturday night where people are getting absolutely hammered, do you have enough short jokes within a story in order to be able to tell them? It is tricky. Um, again, I think one of those things of coming from a different perspective and showing them something that they haven't seen before in terms of going, hey, have you ever had sex in a disabled toilet? No, right, <laughs> hang on. I want to hear more. Can we hear more? Of it? So I think that there are ways around that, uh-huh. but I do think it does make a, a big difference having that, just having an angle and having a reason to talk about it. I think that's, because that, that's very different between the UK and the US. So my main sort of, writing year is revolved around Edinburgh shows. Mm. So I, I try and write an hour's new show every year and it's based on a story of my life. So my last one was about what happened to me between 2017 and 2018 and then what happened between, actually a couple of years before that, I got given a nickname about being in a wheelchair and I wanted to write a show all about it. The nickname was Hot Wheels, which I'll be honest, I'm delighted with. <laughs> it's a great nickname. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, so, yeah, I think just having that reason to talk about something makes a huge difference of like, I think you need both of those things of a reason to talk about it being an interesting subject and something that's going to be engaging to people and that big punchline Mm. and having those tags along the way. Yes, that's a lot of things to put into position. But if you get those things into position, you're golden. Mm. so that's where i sit in terms of the the storytelling is in a way it's hard work but if you put that hard work in you get bigger results right thinking about your style and the way audiences react and bobbing and weaving that that you can do the when you're in a narrative like yours do you have any room at all to move around bits and stories if you're losing an audience do you have can you bring that one that's the second to last joke into the middle just to bring them back do you do that or do you just pretty much stay with the outline i don't have any sort of get out of jail cards Mm. Uh, i don't have any sort of real bailouts for for stories i do think i back myself like nine times out of ten like carrying on with the original story is going to be better than trying to bail out of it or try and run away from it. Mm. I also just trust myself as a comic now that if it's not going well, that I'll be able to deal with it and that I can invite interaction. And I've done enough MCing that like 
I know that I can do that well and I have that skill mm. that if they're if for example I was doing a gig and they started mumbling and I'd be like, ah, fuck this story. I want to know what you're gossiping about. Yeah. I used to work in the gym. I have no gossip. Please tell me all the gossip. <laughs> and then, you know, you start talking about one of their sex lives and, and then you go from there. And and then I think one of the things that MC ta- MCing taught me is if you can go from what they're talking about into another story, so it feels like you just thought of it, it makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, and if you can get those people that are not quite, there we go, they're not quite in, as engaged as they were that it makes a big difference in terms of like it i think there are sometimes where you can just pick up those key people oh you're not interested in that story okay that's fine in what would you like me to talk about then that can make a difference but at the same time if there's a hundred people in the audience and two of them aren't listening fuck them yeah they, yeah <laughs> i'm more interested in the 98 percent of people who are listening and enjoying what i'm saying than the two dickheads in the front row going i i think his glasses are from vision express i think they're from backsavers what do you think but yeah so i think it's a difficult balance yeah so when you started getting the critical claim that you got Mm -hmm. how did that affect you you (laughs) it's it's honestly coming fairly early in in your career because a lot of folks don't get there until 10 years yeah I'm an even bigger egomaniac than I was before, other things. I think it has come quickly, and I, I recognize that. I'm very lucky to be in the position that I am. Like, a, some key things happened at the right time for me. And if so, that BBC thing that you're talking about, it, it literally came when I had five minutes of material. And like, uh-huh. it, my five minutes was significantly better than my 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And then I got that, and I was like, oh, okay, now I need to write a decent 10 minutes. And all these things just clicked into place for me, which is really nice. Um, and, I, and I definitely don't take that for granted. Yeah, it's, I don't tend to stop and think too much, which I think is uh, not a particularly healthy way of going on with your life. But I think that even though I have achieved a lot of success in the, in the, you know, the seven years that I've been going, it's not where I set myself. That's not the finish line mm-hmm. to me. And I think a lot of my previous experiences has been about starting something really well, having a lot of potential in something, and then stopping for a variety of different reasons. And I don't want to do that with comedy. And yes, it's lovely that nice people have said nice things about me. And I'm not, as I say, I'm not taking that for granted, but it's not, it's not the finish line. Like I don't in 10 years time, I don't want to be telling people about how I was BBC new comedian of the year finalist in 2017. Like mm. I want to keep improving and keep having other things to talk about. Yeah. Um, and like keep having different police cars come past my flat every <laughs> five to 10 minutes. Uh, and maybe get a bigger flat where there are more police cars. Um, <laughs> maybe an ambulance or two. Dream the dream. Maybe a fire truck. One yeah. <laughs> can say. But yeah, no, it's nice. I'm not, I think it would be sort of churlish to be like, oh, yeah, no, nothing good's ever happened to me. I appreciate everything that's happened to me. Mm. But I also think it happens because I work hard. The, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I've always ascribed to that. But mm. one thing I heard very early on in my comedy career was a quote. Uh, I think it's from James Corden. But he says, everybody gets lucky, but you have to be ready for when the luck comes. Mm. 
And that was a huge thing for me because at that time, it did seem like this world was impenetrable. And like when you're an open spot, the like how you get to a ten to get a ten minute spot on a pro bill seems impossible because there's thousands of people that could do that ten spot as well, if not better than you. Mm. So it's about how do you get to that next level? And so I remember thinking when I heard that. Okay, so a lot of it isn't in my control, but the things that are in my control are getting better and working harder. Mm -hmm. And so when that BBC thing came along, I'd got a five-minute set that was good enough to be in that show and good enough to get me to the final. Mm. Now, I could have quite easily not... I think it was very lucky that I got picked that first out of the 600 people that applied. Mm. But... I was good enough when I did. And from that point, it then meant that I got a, a nice video out of it, which meant that I could send that to promoters, which meant that I got more open spots. And then I carried on writing and writing, got 20. And then and then I, and I, because I did that BBC thing, the BBC asked me to do another show for them the following year in Edinburgh. And my agent came to see that show because... One of his clients was already th- was also performing in that show. Mm. Again, that's lucky, but that didn't mean my agent signed me because he saw me do five minutes that he'd seen me do before. Right. He then went to see the show that I'd written that I like that I'd worked really hard on that I had a forty-five minute show that was good, and it meant that he then see that and then he signed me. Mm. So it's this kind of stuff of being like whether you when you get the luck is completely random and, and not in your control, but what you do with it completely is. And so I think that's important. And, and, and that is what drives my work ethic to make sure that there are, there's going to be lucky things along the way, but I'm going to make the most of them because that is what, that's the reason why I've been successful up until this point, And that's why I'm going to continue to be successful. Hopefully. One of the common threads with, comedians that I've talked to that do well fairly early is that they have been, you talk about the luck, they've been thrown into something that they thought they weren't ready for, but it turns out they had been working hard enough that they were ready for it and they excelled mm-hmm. at it and that actually propelled them. Yeah. I have I have got that in, in, in certain areas and there are also certain areas where you jump the gun and you're not ready and it's held you back. Like I remember I did my first open 10 spot, a pro gig mm-hmm. um, way too early. I think I was about six months in and I'd written 10 minutes that was getting okay laughs at a open mic night. And then I went to a pro gig and you have professional comedians doing a, an absolute bulletproof 20 and I'm there going with the hack material, and it, and it just didn't work. And it, I think I got away with it to a certain degree, but the promoter just doesn't, like, even now doesn't book me. And mm. that's because they have this attitude, oh, he's an open micer, whereas you wait a little bit longer. or Not even necessarily wait. If you, if you just deal with that situation slightly better, then you have a different outcome. But, yeah, no, totally. I think there are a lot of things that, I probably wasn't as ready as I would have liked to have been mm. uh, before doing them. And then I've just been able to do well with them and go from there. I think those kind of experiences happen the more 
comfortable and confident that you are in your ability. So the longer you do it or the harder you work, like you're right is like, I can stand on a stage with nothing prepared and I'd be quite comfortable and I can talk and I'm fairly sure that I could make something funny and mm. I could make laugh for 20 minutes quite comfortably. Whereas when I first started, I couldn't do that. And even just the idea of five minutes would make me uncomfortable. And so I think the more comfortable you can get in your own skin and understanding what you do that makes people laugh is going to make you a better comic in any situation. Mm. And FYI, it is going to make you get laid more often. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. I've been with the same woman for 37 years, so that's not what I'm going for. <laughs> That see that's the rookie error. Like you need to get a comedy when you're young and single. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so you did mention at the top that you have bombed, and bombing is mm -hmm. part of what comedy is. How do mm -hmm. you regroup after a bomb? What do you do? Get on stage as quickly as possible. Okay. So I. That was one of the reasons why I was really scared of doing an online gig during the first lockdown is because my way of dealing with a bomb is to just get on stage as soon as I can, do either jokes that I know work or do some new stuff or just play around, have some fun, no pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and I was worried that if I did a gig to silence, essentially because the audience mic'd or the tech wasn't there at the beginning of lockdown because no one knew how to run an online gig, yeah. um, it would feel like I was bombing and my solution to feel like you're bombing, get on stage again, wouldn't be possible for, you know, a year. And I yeah. would feel like I was like die. And like, I remember my last gig before lockdown was a really good gig. And I was like, no, I've got that in the bank. Let's stick with that. <laughs> Let's not risk it just for uh, an online gig. Um, but yeah, I think, that, that's my only sort of real technique to deal with bombing is I think there are lessons you can learn uh -huh. from bombing and mistakes you have made that you don't want to repeat. But I think learn lessons that are not necessarily true. So like, it, I remember the worst I've ever bombed was in this like village hall kind of thing. I don't know if you have a similar setup, but it was basically just like a bar really dingy bar but it was this really small town but everyone went from the town yeah and it was their like local hub and it was a really long thin room and i was like okay this is either a, a ride or die situation uh -huh. like you can't have an okay good gig in this place and uh, i was down in the middle and the opening act did well and i was like okay this is going to be a good gig it's fine and during the interview interval i realized that i wouldn't be able to go from the back of the room in between all the people because there was no room for my chair. So uh -huh. I had to carry my chair over all of the audience during the interval and uh -huh. sit by the stage. And I was just sat there. And then there was these two girls on this table. And one of them said to me, hey, do you get nervous? And I turned to her and I went, nah, not anymore. I'm really good. And at that point, I knew I was going to die. Like, I was like, are you fucking more... Why would you say... I know you. I know why you've said that. They're good-looking girls and you want to impress them. But mm. say that after you've done well, 
or even better, be modest after you've done well, and then you get the best of both worlds. But so I got to say, I died on my. Oh, it was so horrific. It was silence for twenty minutes. Uh-huh. Whatever I tried, it did nothing, and. It was at the point in my career where I was still applying to all the gigs that I was doing. No one was asking me to do anything. But these, this was like the first gig that I'd been asked specifically for. And I was dead chuffed about it. And after I died on my hole, hole for 20 minutes, the MC came back on stage and was like, and the owner of this place wants to have a quick word, Aaron. Could you just stay here? And I was like, no, I want to get off this stage as quickly as humanly possible. <laughs> no, 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 just stay here. And it turns out, that they invited me to perform because they had just made a disabled toilet and they wanted <laughs> me to open the disabled toilet for them. So you're, I had to cr- you're christening a toilet. Yeah, I'm, yeah. So I had to open the toilet uh, and like with big giant scissors and like and like. Okay, so we're just going to film this. So could you be happy? I was like, be happy. I've just died of my ass for twenty years. <laughs> and like, I declared this toilet open, and I just fucked off into the toilet oh yeah. man and i waited until those girls left before i came out yeah uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah no it was horrible horrible death oh. um, but the reason why i bring that up because a it's a very funny story but b so there are lessons that you can learn that baby don't say that you're very good at comedy before you've done yes the game yeah that is asking to that's asking for a death <laughs> but the things that you can learn that not true because of that gig is that the material that I did is not good. Uh-huh. I might have done one or two things at the beginning of that gig that turns the whole audience off me, and then nothing that I can say will change that. Mm. And so you can be like, oh, my usual closer isn't good anymore because of that one gig. Mm. It's not the case. With with a neutral audience, not even with a good audience, with a neutral audience, that works. Stick with that. Figure out the things you did before the gig, during the beginning of the gig, that made you die, and don't worry about the things that happened because you were already dying. Mm. Because once you're dying, you start, you know, stumbling and forgetting words. And you never do that when you're doing well. Like, it, no like no comic has ever forgotten a word yeah. when a routine is flying. Uh-huh. Like, that's not the way our brains work. When it's when it's easy, it's easy. Right. So don't stress too much about what you did when it wasn't working because that's hopefully a rare occurrence. And if it's not, maybe you shouldn't be doing comedy. Yeah, right. <laughs> no doubt. So this is something I like to ask everybody because yeah. comedy is always a community. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a, not the nicest community in the world, but it's always a community. What is the best and worst advice you've gotten in the seven years you've been doing stand-up or sit-down? Yeah, there we go. First joke <laughs> ever wrote. <laughs> best advice. Now, be ready for when the luck comes is genuinely the yeah. thing that makes the biggest difference. I think a lot of the worst advice tends to come from people who are offering joke advice after a show, yeah. I'd be like, so you do a show and be like, oh, you thought about doing this one thing? What? Like, So I mentioned my disabled coconut show. It was about the time I got trolled on the internet for not being disabled enough. And I talk a lot about my disability and his disability and how they interact and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, people will come up to me after the show and be like, oh, did you think about this? And I'm like, 
Yes, of course I thought about that. It was the first thing that I thought of. But the problem with that is you've thought about it. And if you've thought about it, everybody else in the audience has thought about it. And therefore I can't use it. And yeah, one of the things I remember hearing about that is when you're thinking about doing a joke on Twitter or something topical, don't do the the thing that comes the first thing that comes to your mind because everyone thinks of that don't do the second thing that comes to your mind because the smart asses think of that do the third thing that comes to your mind because that's what comedians do yeah but comedians have to be able to get to that third thing as quickly as muggles can get to that first thing Uh that's the real skill yeah that yeah i don't have much time for the audience suggested material particularly able-bodied people suggesting the the jokes i could do about being in a wheelchair yeah that <laughs> stay in your lane yeah <laughs> and your own toilets. Uh, <laughs> i can't tell you how many friends and family members have given me advice yeah. and jokes that have seen me perform yeah. and they don't fit with me at all and mm. i'm like did you watch because <laughs> i can't go from talking about my kids for five minutes to all of a sudden um like an eating ass joke i can't it yeah. just doesn't it doesn't work so <laughs> it's a hard segue that isn't yeah, it to, yeah. Get, to get from one to the other i'll tell you what is probably my least favorite sentence that i've heard most often since starting comedy is oh you can use that one yeah oh, <laughs> like that that riles me no like any time you're in any kind of situation like i think it happens more at family get-togethers than like social get-togethers but like anytime there's anything funny someone go oh you could use that and like no (laughs) just because six people who all know who my aunt shirley is doesn't mean that an audience of people who don't know who she is is going to find it even remotely funny right and like that oh my god it makes me so angry i did want to discuss talk about the podcast a little bit because mm-hmm. if you're a comedian and you don't have a podcast these days it seems like something's wrong with you tell me about the podcast so it is all about superheroes it's essentially uh, comedians talking nonsense about superheroes for about half an hour. And so what happened is lockdown one came about and I <laughs> wanted to pretend it wasn't happening. So I watched all the Marvel movies and I thought, what would be like, wouldn't it be great to be Iron Man or Hulk or Thor or whatever? And then I thought it'd be even better if you could be a combination of all of these people. And so you could have the the head of Tony Stark and the upper body of Hulk and the legs of Captain America. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to work out what my ultimate hero would be. And I think I came up with 27 different attributes into a hero, mm. including different right hand to left hand, different right wrist and left wrist. It was a good three or four days that I, I spent on this. And then so I was having a chat with one of my, with a couple of comics that I'm friends with. And they asked me what I've been up to. And I was like, I've come up with this ultimate superhero. What do you think? And then and they absolutely tore it apart. And they were like, no, this, you got to have that. you got to have that. And it was the most fun I'd had in sort of five, six months. And I thought, fuck it, this is a podcast idea. And so that's what it is, essentially. And I get two guests who try and come up with their ultimate superhero by combining different 
body parts of superheroes and we chat about which one we would prefer and what would they do if they had that in real life and lots of really hypothetical silly questions uh-huh. um and it's just a it's a lot of silly fun sounds like fun and it's called mm-hmm. silliest superhero close i've made it needlessly complicated this title it's called the silliest superest heroist podcast there you go there you go yeah <laughs> It sounded funny when I said it the first time, and I have to say it every time I introduce yeah. the podcast. And it's getting harder and harder. You'd think I'd be quite good at saying it now. I, I say it, I text these three or four takes every single time I do a podcast. But um, <laughs> I, like, the thing about it is I'm okay with me having to do three or four takes. But I, now that I'm promoting it, I've been yeah. on radio shows, and they're like, it, they have to work up to it. They have to have a run-up at it. They're like, okay, silly as super here. Okay, let's do it. And then they go. And it, I feel like I'm creating hard, a lot of work for other podcasters, so I feel bad about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nothing I can do about it now. Yeah. It's up on uh-huh. iTunes. I, I can't wait to do the read and try to read that. Yeah. So we'll, that's a tongue twister. So we'll see <laughs> how that works for me. So where can people find you if they want to catch you on social media? It's right in there. Because yeah. I thought it through. So it's at Rolling Comedian. Rolling like rolling down a hill, not as in J.K. Rolling. I've used some trans people. Uh, <laughs> I was in. Six out of those guys. Or girls. Or in between. Because, yeah. you know, gender is fluid. Rolling Comedian is what I meant to say. And, yeah, so if you want to check out the podcast, it's on all the usual places. And also go to my website, AaronSimmonsComedy.com. All right. Do you have any plans when things open up to come to the States and give it a shot? I would love to. It there's a, there were plans in place before the global pandemic happened, so I am planning on doing it at some point. Whether or not those plans can go ahead as soon as they would have before, I don't know. But yeah, no, I don't know any comic that wouldn't want to go tour the states for at least a little bit. But yeah, no. If you guys can be can find me big enough venues with enough people who wants to listen to this guy talk for an hour and a half i will be there i th- i think you'd go over well and heck you could come now but it's you're almost guaranteed to get covid and then <laughs> who knows if the hospital has room for you because we just don't give a shit and yeah yeah it's it's a good way uh i have performed in america before i've, I've done a couple of gigs in new york i, I went there oh four or five years ago now yeah they were really fun yeah like i think here i'm just disabled over there i'm disabled and english oh, yeah what a winning combo that is you're uh, the whole package yeah. yeah whole package think about how many blocks i took uh yeah no it's um no i had a good time in the, in the u.s i'd love to come back great well, it's been great having you on the show i'm yeah, glad we connected and i'm glad yeah. i learned some stuff from you uh, I learned stuff from you as well. Mainly, really? never, get, uh, I don't yeah, know mainly never get married. But, you know, uh, <laughs> there's some comedy things in there as well. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it, Aaron. No problem. Anytime, mate.